Welcome to our business deep dive on WKXL. I'm Matt Robeson, and with me, as always, is Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. Chris, welcome back. Good to be here. It is good to have you here, and it is good to be wrapping up 2020. I don't think there's anyone out there who disagrees with that uh, idea. And what we thought we would do today is start to look back and maybe have some fun with a not very fun topic, the year 2020, uh, hand out some end of year awards in the stock business and economics realm, and kind of use that as a pivot point to start to think ahead to what 2021 might hold. So we will do that this week, next week, and as we head into the new year, the week after. And let's see if we can give our listeners a little bit of a, a look back and a look ahead. So let's start on that, on that note, on that theme. Let's start with possibly the last really big name company to come out with an earnings report, which, which just happened, um, you know, right, right in this run up to Christmas here. Um, Nike. Nike shares hit an all-time high uh, over the last week. Um, you know, but they have some, they have some interesting pivot points ahead. We have the delayed summer Olympics coming up summer of 2021. That's obviously really big from a marketing standpoint. They're investing heavily in the Olympics. So they have some strategic terrain to navigate here. What do you think the story is for Nike, for athletics, for athletics apparel, for shoes? Um, what, what tea leaves do you read out of all of this? I think Nike is one of those companies that um, provides a really good blueprint for other businesses in terms of the way that they have executed, in part because they're a global company. Uh, so one of the things we saw in their latest earnings report was how sales for Nike in China have really bounced back in a big way. And I, when you look at how much money Nike has invested over the past few years in terms of digital uh, payment systems, enabling people, encouraging people to just buy directly from them, buy online, use the Nike app, all those sorts of things. Um, it, it really is a, a model for a lot of businesses that they would do well to emulate. I think to, to your point about the Olympics, it is gonna be interesting to see because typically what we see with businesses like Nike and Adidas, Under Armour to a lesser extent, is when we have these big global sporting events, whether it's the Men's World Cup, the Women's World Cup, and in particular, the Summer Olympics, companies like Nike and Adidas and Under Armour really start to invest in their marketing. They really ramp up their marketing spend in those years. And it's going to be very interesting to see how they do it because Nike, I would make the case that Nike is, is maybe the best operator in, in the space when it comes to marketing. Um, you know, there are Nike ads that you can just watch just for fun and not even think about the fact that you're, uh, that they're trying to sell you something. Uh, they do such an amazing job with uh, commercials that are, you know, either amusing or inspirational, but at the same time, Everybody is crossing their fingers that the Summer Olympics is going to happen in July next year. And uh, Nike's ability to be very nimble with how they spend their money, where they spend their money, um, that's going to be critical to their success in 2021. I think they can do it in part because they've done that sort of thing in the past. Of course, the, the big wrinkle that they and everyone else is dealing with is we've never had a global pandemic like this before. 
in the modern age. So um, I think Nike is an amazing company. Uh, I would never bet against them, um, but uh, th they do have a couple of hurdles to clear next year. Well, count this as one vote from this interested uh, consumer and avid sports watcher for uh, a call back to the Dan versus Dave ads. Talk about a feel-good summer marketing campaign tied to the Olympics. Um, you know, that would that would take me back and probably put me in a Nike buying mood. So it sounds like part of what you're saying here is that, you know, like all businesses, to some extent, they've had to lie fallow in 2020. It's been a rocky year uh, for the bottom line. However, um, it sounds like what Nike is doing, first of all, is they're somehow managing from a from an investor standpoint to continue to thrive. And second of all, they're really laying the foundation with these investments in digital, digital sales channels for a really big year in 2021. If they hit right, if they hit the confluence of a really good environment for consumers to, at a whim, just log right on through the app, buy Nike apparel, buy Nike products, combined with what a lot of people are talking about. I sound like Donald Trump here. A lot of people are saying, but a lot of people are saying that we could have a lot of pent up demand that starts to get expressed toward the second quarter, third quarter of 2021. Plus you have this big global marketing extravaganza in the Olympics. So it could be, and I don't want to force you to over speculate here, but it could be that you could, you could really have all of those forces come together in a big way for Nike and other companies that have intelligently positioned themselves. I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of people think, and I'm one of them, think about pent-up demand in terms of leaving the house. So pent-up demand for travel, getting on an airplane, going on a vacation, going out to a restaurant, that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. There is going to be pent-up demand for athletic apparel. Think of all of the student athletes out there, not just college, but high school, uh, junior high as well. Uh, I think that there's a great opportunity for these athletic apparel companies, particularly in the second half of 2021, to really make some hay. Are there companies that you're seeing out there that have similarly invested in these kinds of channels and are are potentially really well positioned. Again, I want to caution all our listeners here. We're not giving necessarily specific, even though Chris Hill is one of the best experts out there, we're not giving specific investment advice around companies, but just your guidance, just your feel in terms of your finger on the pulse of uh, companies that are thinking ahead intelligently and positioning themselves if there is an economic wave to catch. Do any kind of uh, strike your eye right now in the, in the same way that Nike might be? Certainly in 2020, we've seen a lot of businesses invest as quickly as possible, as heavily as possible in making it easy for people to buy their products and services in multiple ways, uh, what we refer to as this omni-channel approach. Uh, we've seen this with big retailers like Target and Walmart, where, yeah, they'd love you to come into the location because that's where the impulse purchases happen. You're much more likely to make an impulse purchase if you're walking around a Target or a Walmart than you are if you're clicking around online. But they've invested to make it so that people can have stuff delivered to their homes or do curbside pickup. In terms of digital payments, this may be an unusual company to cite, but over the last decade, Domino's Pizza has done as good a job as any company in America at investing in digital payments. Uh, Domino's Pizza stock has been such a huge winner for the past decade. And it's uh, to the point where some of the analysts that I work with at The Motley Fool 
they will say with a straight face, Domino's isn't a pizza company. They're a tech company. All of the investments that they have made in their app, uh, in their delivery systems to make it so that it's as easy as possible for people with one or two clicks of a button on their smartphone can get a pizza headed to their house. So I, I think Domino's um, is another one of those shining examples of a company that you can go back to 2010, 2011. There were absolutely people saying, why is Domino's spending so much money investing in this technology part of their business? I'm not really sure what the payoff is here. And we've really seen it, particularly over the last five years. Wow, that's a really fascinating look at kind of the hidden side of the economy that you don't necessarily see if you're just watching the ads or thinking to yourself, I need a pizza. That's an incredible amount of infrastructure that they've sort of built into the back end. And that's a great segue to one of the topics we thought we would tee up today as part of our kind of fun look at the year end and beginning to pivot our thinking ahead to 2021. We wanted to hand out some awards and one of the awards that you suggested to me was for CEO of the year. And it, it sounds like you have a, a few in mind, uh, uh, individuals who maybe did some of this kind of positioning of their companies to get through a lean year and start to position themselves for hopefully uh, better years ahead. So uh, Chris Hill, who is your CEO of the year? And you can, you can name runner ups if you like. I was talking with one of our analysts uh, earlier today, and we were talking about this idea of the CEO of the year. And I said to her, I don't envy the people at Forbes magazine because they give out a, a CEO of the year award every year. I said, I really don't envy them this year because it seems like there are more candidates than there are in a typical year. Um, you could look at someone like Eric Yuan, who's the CEO and founder of Zoom Video. And you can make a very good case for Eric Yuan because Zoom is now a part of our lexicon in America in the same way that Google is not just a search engine, it is a verb that we use. I think Zoom is here to stay. Um, Eric Yuan is uh, a, a very um, inspiring business leader. Um, and, and if you think back to the spring, Zoom was dealing with some very real challenges, uh, particularly around security around their platform. Uh, anytime you grow from 10 million people are using your product or service on a daily basis, you go from 10 million a day to 300 million a day. And that is the growth that Zoom Video has seen this year. There are gonna be some bumps along the way. And I think I think Eric Yuan is, is probably a great choice for CEO of the year. Um, uh, I also look at someone like Kevin Johnson, who's the CEO of Starbucks. Uh, uh, Matt, when I think about business leaders in America, there are a lot of great leaders of companies, but I think there is a, a small group that they're not just leaders of whatever is the company they are the CEO of. They are essentially spokespeople for business. They have a gravitas about them. And I think 2020 is the year that Kevin Johnson moved from being not just the CEO of Starbucks, but he became one of the business statesman in America. Uh, he's done an incredible job leading this ubiquitous company, uh, dealing with so many challenges. Starbucks has a huge and growing presence in China. And so Kevin Johnson was in the pretty unique uh, position of 
trying to manage the pandemic in China and then planning accordingly uh, for when it hit America. Uh, and so I, I think uh, I would make Kevin Johnson uh, one of the runners up. Well, of course, it really is amazing anytime that a company can reposition itself uh, as a verb or as a synonym for the product that that company represents. If you think about reaching for a Kleenex or, or going to make a Xerox, and you have to explain to uh, uh, the younger generation that there are other tissues besides Kleenex, uh, and there are other ways to make copies. Of course, you know we don't really do that anymore. Um, that's kind of gone the way of a fax. But um, you know, other ways besides Xerox. That really is amazing that. Um, Zoom has become a verb and it has, we're on Zoom right now. And it's really fundamentally remade a lot of the ways we do things in the economy. So um, I, that's, a, that's a very worthy nominee. What about, what about some companies that have had to, on the theme of rapid adaptation, of, of trying to uh, nimbly make them th their way through an unprecedented economic environment? It, it does seem like some businesses, some business leaders went above and beyond the, the call of, of duty to normal business activity this year. Um, this might, you could think of this as kind of like a sportsmanship award. Um, who, who might get an award like that for, for kind of answering that, that call above and beyond? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, uh, one is a, a medical device company called Medtronic. Um, there are a lot of businesses, Apple is, is probably the first one that leaps to mind, um, where their intellectual property is the lifeblood of the business. And that's why there are uh, so many patent attorneys <laughs> working at these big companies. Uh, again, Medtronic does medical devices. There are a lot of businesses that do medical devices. And Medtronic, like any business, is very protective of their intellectual property. And back in the spring, uh, there was a shortage of ventilators around the globe. And Medtronic took what I thought was a pretty extraordinary step where they took the design specs of their ventilator, which is one of the best in the world, and made it publicly available. They just said to anyone in any business who has the capacity to build ventilators, here is our design. Here are the specs. Here are the people on our team. If you have any questions, we as a planet need more ventilators. And this is bigger than just this one revenue stream for us at Medtronic. Uh, the world is in peril right now and we need more of these ventilators. Here's our design. I thought that was an extraordinary step. Uh, so I'd give one to them. Uh, I would give the second to uh, a woman who is not a business leader per se, um, but she has very much made a name for herself in 2020, and that is Mackenzie Scott. Uh, Mackenzie Scott, for those who aren't familiar with her name, uh, used to be married to Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder and CEO of Amazon. And uh, as happens uh, with some couples over time, they got divorced. Uh, Mackenzie Scott uh, ended up being uh, very wealthy as a result of that. And she has become an incredible example in terms of philanthropy. Just in 2020, Mackenzie Scott has given away $6 billion to various charities. And she has, again, this is not a CEO, uh, but this is someone who is um, familiar to the business world. And she is now um, 
setting an incredible example. Uh, you know, we've seen people like Bill and Melinda Gates um, set up foundations, and uh, and there are plenty of other billionaire CEOs who give a lot of money to charity. Mackenzie Scott in 2020 has very quickly raised the bar for what it means for billionaires to give away money. And uh, I hope more of them follow her example. You know, it's funny. I come out of the world of politics. You're obviously an expert in the field of business. Uh, and we find a way to meet in the middle here on this show. But in, in politics and in, in my earlier career and being an advisor to politicians, one of the things that I frequently said is, Good policy is good politics, not all the time, but usually, usually it's another way of saying, if you do the right thing, the politics are going to take care of themselves. And it sounds like what you're really highlighting with people like Mackenzie Scott, with uh, companies like Medtronics that sought to do the right thing, the politics, the communications, all of the positioning that companies try and do in terms of burnishing their brand, their image, their, their, their overall uh, place in the uh, economic ecosystem, all of that will follow and take care of itself. And it sounds like you're really highlighting people and companies that went down that path, tried to do the right thing. And it sounds like you're also suggesting that there is a business and economic backend that's gonna be equally positive for them because they did go down this path of doing the right thing. Absolutely. And I think to the extent that there are big positives to social media, uh, I think one of those big positives is that uh, there are a lot of consumers out there who are making it known to the businesses that they um, frequent, uh, that they want those businesses to stand for something. And uh, we've seen it with movements like Black Lives Matter. Um, we've seen it uh, in the LGBTQ community as well. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, are, we are past the time when businesses can uh, simply go about whatever it is they do, whatever product or service they provide, and, um, and not do anything else. Uh, consumers today are more informed than ever before. They want to know, what does this business stand for? They want to know, what, do you have a charitable arm? What are you doing? What are you doing to give back to the community? Uh, that sort of thing. So uh, I, I, I think that, again, Mackenzie Scott has been extraordinary with, with what she's given away this year. Um, but, you know, uh, on, you know there, there are only so many billionaires in the world, even though there are more than there used to be. Um, but there are a lot of businesses, and, and this goes for local businesses as well. I mean, people want to, people want to know what does this business stand for, whether it's a medical device company on a global level like Medtronic, or it's your local coffee shop uh, just uh, supporting the community baseball team. Really fascinating topic and one that we're going to have to return to because I do observe, and obviously you're a closer observer than I am, that there is a movement toward allowing companies to redefine themselves and their mission. You see it in the movement toward allowing companies to reincorporate as benefit corporations uh, that's uh, uh, really flooded across the majority of states at this point, uh, and to allow them to focus on maximizing not just shareholder value, but also a specific social or benefit mission. Uh, and it's interesting that there's this kind of change in, in consumer uh, and public expectations about the roles that companies and business leaders should be fulfilling. Um, I, you know, I think we've got time for just one more topic, but I have a feeling it's going to be a, a super quick one. We were going to talk about the business headline of the year, 
I think there's only one nominee here. Is is do you have a do you have a shocker for me, or is it just is it just what I think? What was the business headline of the year, Chris Hill? Absolutely, it's the pandemic. Most years, you can make a case for other <laughs> for for multiple business stories or big stories of the year. No question, it's the pandemic, and and that we've talked about. Uh, how some of these major retailers like Walmart and Target have really adapted their businesses very quickly. Um, we've seen businesses that maybe we weren't familiar with as consumers. Certainly, Zoom is one of those businesses. But um, anyone who's doing work from home um, might be using collaborative software that's not just Zoom, but things like Slack and uh, and Trello and those sorts of things. Um, and uh, obviously exercise, uh, Peloton has uh, become a household name uh, with their equipment and their um, move to getting people to exercise at home. Um, so no question, the pandemic is, is number one with a bullet in terms of the business story of the year. And unfortunately, part of that story is um, national retailers going out of business. Uh, we've seen that in sports apparel. We've seen that in um, like home kitchen goods, that sort of thing. Sur la table, um, you know, businesses that make good products, but just weren't able to make it through this pandemic. And we've certainly seen it with a lot of local restaurants as well. Um, I, I, I don't know about the town you live in, the town I live in. Absolutely. There are, there are restaurants where the doors are closed and, and you just sort of wonder, um, are they going to be coming back? Um, and if not, what's, what's going to be in their place. So pandemic is the story of, of 2020. And I hope that a year from now, um, we're having a longer, more robust conversation about what is the business story of 2021, because the pandemic is gone and we have multiple nominees. Well, I think we're going to leave it here for now. Now, look, for our podcast listeners, you're about to experience, uh, you know, about a five second delay for the end of this show. We're going to jump right back into it for our radio listeners. You're going to have to wait a week to hear the rest of this fascinating conversation with Chris Hill of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America. And you can tell from listening to Chris here that that is richly deserved. So Chris Hill, thank you very much for once again being part of this show. We are going to take a break here. We are going to be right back for folks on podcast and for folks on the radio. We will see you next week. And we're back with Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock and investing radio show in America. When we last left off with Chris, we were wrapping up the year 2020. We were handing out some postseason awards, as it were, uh, trying to get a sense of taking stock of the year that was what a fantastic year it's been uh, and beginning to think ahead to what 2021 portends. So, Chris, ready to jump back into it? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, so let's get into the category of biggest investing lessons of 2020, because obviously, look, you know, the pandemic, super unusual circumstances, though I have to say, not unprecedented, kind of a black swan in the sense that you do actually get unexpected events. They're expected in the sense that they're just, they're rare. So we had this rare event. Did we learn anything about investing strategies? Did, did, did people who held on and didn't try to time the market have their patience and that kind of standard long-term view validated? Or did enough people who tried to look for safe harbors and then got back into the market, were they successful enough to say, oh, maybe sometimes you can time the market? W what were your takeaways from the year? 
Uh, I have three takeaways. First, in answer to your question, I think that investors who take a long-term view of the market were absolutely rewarded this year. Keep in mind, from late February to late March, the overall market fell 34%. Um, I'm sure there were a few people who timed this perfectly. Maybe they saw the fall coming and they got out at the top and then bought back in at the bottom. Um, if they did that, there are some uh, tax consequences they have to deal with that long-term uh, investors don't have to deal with. So I, I, I think that uh, timing the market is so incredibly difficult. I, I wouldn't advise anyone try to do it. Um, uh, there are professionals who, who don't get this right. So I, th that's the first thing I'd say. The second is I was reminded of um, a quote from Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, he was asked, um, about the concept of surprises and, and what should we learn from surprises. And he said the correct lesson to learn from surprises is that the world is surprising. Um, and uh, I, I think if you step back and sort of let that sink in, it, it's actually kind of comforting, I think, for investors that, uh, you know, there's a tendency to try and draw very specific lessons from one-off events. And I think if you're an investor who's looking to invest in the stock market for 20, 30, 40 years, um, I think instead of trying to glean a specific lesson from the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, or the pandemic of 2020, I think the bigger, more important lesson is just that the world is surprising. And you need to build that into your expectations model, if you will, uh, when you're thinking about uh, what your tolerance is uh, for anything that could cause the market to drop suddenly over a short period of time. And the third thing, and this is something, Matt, you and I have talked about before, leadership matters when it comes to running a business. I think 2020 was a year where it mattered more than ever before. Uh, we saw business leaders do really smart things for all of their stakeholders, for their employees, for their shareholders. Uh, we saw leaders who stepped up uh, and were additionally charitable. Um, it, it, we saw the opposite side of that as well, because there were a number of businesses that went under in 2020. Uh, but the kind of leadership that can react to the unforeseen, that has a the foresight to put a strong team around them because no one individual CEO is infallible. Uh, I think that was more important than ever before. Mm, it's so interesting you say that. I mean, of course, it puts me in mind this, this question of, do you ever try to time the market? It puts me in mind of how easy it is to draw the wrong lessons, as you're saying, from one-off events, even one-off successes you know i as a as a sports fan i know you're a basketball fan too i think of like the 1990s john starks if you were a knicks fan or nowadays maybe the the analog is like a russell westbrook who as a fan what you don't want to see is that first three go in because you know he's going to try and take the next nine and he's not going to ultimately shoot a good percentage so it sounds like part of what you're saying here is that you know maybe there are if you picked up a few leaves and tried to describe the forest, you could find some where you know, people people tried to time things. There were some one-offs that were pretty successful, but overall, the lesson really validated the kind of guidance that you and other experts try to give from an investor standpoint, be patient, look to the long-term, look to the fundamentals, 
don't try and get ahead of a wildly unpredictable situation. It seems like that was really validated by and large. And if it wasn't, if you were one of those lucky people, don't take the next nine jump shots because your percentage is not going to get any better. Absolutely. And, you know, the S&P 500, when we talk about what is the performance of the stock market, we're talking about the performance of the S&P 500. It's going to finish 2020 up around 14, 15%. That's an above average year. Uh, So to go back to the point of taking the longer view, uh, if you start the year uh, and you end the year 14, 15% higher, yeah, what happened in the middle, what happened in the spring was a pretty scary ride for investors. But now that we're at the end of 2020, we can look back and say, yeah, this was an above average year for the market. Yeah, you don't want to yada, yada, yada the middle necessarily for, for those who are caught in the middle. I mean, you want to mention the best here, but I mean, it is interesting that within the last week, as we're recording this, U.S. stocks climbed to records after the signing of the COVID-19 relief bill, um, you know, and, and so now the Dow and, and or the S&P 500, um, you know, flying pretty high. And it, it does seem to suggest that if you can, if you can hang in there, you know, stick with it, stick with it. All right. Talking about surprises as we are, um, look, I mean, again, surprising year. But what do you think in terms of, if we were to craft a category of this, surprise performers of 2020, who stood out to you as they should not have done as well as they did? Or conversely, maybe they should have been expected to thrive under these adverse conditions and they really sort of underperformed what, what they could have done. Any, any standouts there? You know, we've talked a lot about how difficult this year has been for restaurants, and that's absolutely true, particularly for independent local restaurants. I think what's been surprising is how some of the national chains have been able to uh, really thrive uh, Chipotle being number one among them as sort of a fast casual concept. Um, but even uh, the way a lot of restaurants figured out pretty quickly in the pandemic that one of the most popular takeout and delivery items was wings. And so we saw national restaurant chains who weren't really known for their wings very quickly say, okay, this is where we need to move in the same way that we saw large retailers make a big pivot towards uh, putting resources behind curbside pickup and delivery. Uh, We saw a lot of national restaurant chains just say, okay, uh, we weren't about chicken wings at any point in the past, but we are right now. And in some cases that has helped restaurant chains stay afloat um, and sort of get to the other side of this pandemic. I think that there's a a category of businesses, uh, and I say this lovingly, that I like to refer to as boring because they are boring. They, they make boring products. There's nothing sexy about house paint. There's nothing sexy about bleach. And yet Clorox and Sherwin-Williams have had phenomenal years. Um, uh, I've said this on Motley Fool Money a bunch of times. I can't imagine that the next 10 years for Clorox won't be better than the last 10. And that, uh, you know, as a, as a business has done quite well. Uh, Sherwin-Williams, um, you know, this is sort of an offshoot of what we saw with businesses like Home Depot and Lowe's uh, in terms of people being stuck in their homes and saying, all right, it's time for a fresh coat of paint. Um, so I, a third one I'll throw in there is Scott's miracle Grow, 
which is also a, a standalone public company. Again, people looking around their yards and saying, all right, I've got the time. I'm going to attack this uh, bed of weeds here. Um, you know, on the flip side, in a year in which so many of us were signing up for, if we hadn't already signed up for, things like Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix, and we were binge watching everything under the sun, it is all the more remarkable that Quibi went completely belly up this year. And for those unfamiliar, Quibi um, started two years ago with much fanfare. Jeffrey Katzenberg, former uh, Disney executive who started, uh, one of the people who started DreamWorks, came out with this idea for an original video company with video shows that were 10 minutes or less, and they couldn't make it work. And they couldn't make it work at a time when people were trapped in their homes watching a ton of video. And it's pretty remarkable that they failed the way they did. You know, one of the things that I hear kind of embedded as you, as you talk about this is your earlier comment about how leadership matters. And it's, it's, it sounds like part of what you're saying here is that different strategies could work in this kind of environment. Some strategies are just stay the course and be boring. And some involve you know, panning for gold that you might not have expected in the form of chicken wings. Or, you know, you talked recently about the fact that Domino's has has made the baseline investment to essentially become a technology company. Um, that that's, that's their, they're a platform for food delivery. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's very smart positioning. So it's, it sounds like one of the common threads here in, in these surprises is smart leadership, really reading the, the signals from the marketplace correctly, uh, in terms of what people are going to demand and deciding, are you going to be boring? Are you going to look for those hidden gems of opportunities um, and, and, and going after them? Absolutely. You know, you, you just reminded me of a, a, a great business lesson from uh, Andy Grove, who was a longtime leader at Intel and uh, uh, just a brilliant mind and a brilliant business leader. And there was a point in Intel's history where they essentially had a chip that was very profitable and had been a very profitable division for them for a number of years. And as technology changed, uh, there was a push within the company. We need to start developing these other chips. And there was resistance uh, and it, it sort of came to a head. And, and at one point, Andy Grove turned to his right-hand man and said, if you and I were fired, if the board of directors fired you and me and they brought in two new people, what would they do? And his guy said, oh, they would totally start developing this new line of chips. And he said, I think you're right. So I think you and I should fire ourselves, walk out the door, walk back in, and let's start working on these new chips. And the lesson there is just because something has worked in the past, it doesn't mean you should be wedded to it, although it's natural for people within companies to say, no, 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 this has made a lot of money for us. Why would we do anything else? I'm sure there were people at these different restaurant chains saying, look, this, chicken wings are not what we do. And, you know, fortunately, the leadership of those restaurants said, yeah, but it's what we're doing now. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. You know, I, that kind of brings to mind for me another, you know, uh, um, <laughs> famous uh, technologist, Bill Gates, who is oft quoted, although I'm not sure he originated this. Uh, th this may be attributed to him uh, somewhat in error, but uh, the quote anyway is people always underestimate the amount of change that's going to occur in the next two years and underestimate the amount of change that's going to happen in the next 10. So 
we're coming out of an environment where there's a lot of change, a lot of ferment. Um, and I think it's maybe a little too soon to tell which of those changes from 2020, which of those adaptations, like is chicken wings going to be a big thing for the next 10 years? I don't know. But, you know, using your radar and, and, and your vastly better insights into, into the business world and the market, what stands out to you as the potentially most lasting changes of 2020? Um, and I, I know this is kind of like a, a basic, um, you know, economics thing, but I mean, is it, is it like the rise of telework? Is it um, the fact that, you know, if you're running a business that, that, sells shared workspaces, maybe like we work, maybe this wasn't, you know, your, your, your banner year. Um, maybe businesses that, that rely on business travel, are they, are they now stuck in a long-term restructuring type thing? So, so which of these changes that we've seen are going to stick around and be talking about, you know, a starting in 2020 in like five years or that, or that 10 years that, that Gates was talking about? I think telework is probably going to be the lasting change uh, although I don't think it's going to be as ubiquitous as other people seem to think it's going to be. I don't think the office, as we once knew it, is dead in the way that other people think it's dead. Uh, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who enjoy the process of going to a job. Um, now, the, the fact that so many businesses, mine included, um, have been working from home for the last 10 months, um, I, I think what this means is that uh, the human resources uh, departments of businesses across America uh, have their work cut out for them. Because I think that there's, uh, there's going to be a lot of flexibility re required. And in some cases, what that means is... Um, uh, figuring out how to balance the people who say, I'm good working from home full time with the people who say, I actually want to be in the office and sort of figuring out, okay, how do we um, balance out these needs? What is our office culture? You know, the, over the last, I would say, 20 years or so, um, an, an underrated story in American business is the importance of office culture. Um, if you no longer have an office, I would argue you no longer have an office culture. You have a work culture, but you don't have an office culture. And there are particularly younger people who enjoy um, getting together. If they're moving to a new city, that's their entry point for socializing in that new city is going out with their friends after work. So I think that appetite is still there. I think it's, um, it's gonna be more of a balancing act uh, than a lot of people think. In terms of business travel, uh, there is gonna come a point where airline prices uh, or airline ticket prices uh, start to rise dramatically because they're they've been low for all the obvious reasons but i do think that hotels need to think long and hard about what is the value proposition that they are offering yes for people like you and me who don't do a lot of business travel but we're maybe you know traveling to a hotel for a vacation or a long weekend or something like that so yes for people like you and me but more for the business traveler um, what, what is that value proposition? Because uh, 2020 was also a, a year where blockbuster IPOs came back and Airbnb was one of the biggest. And Airbnb has um, opened up a line of competition that five years ago, hotels never would have imagined was coming. So uh, I, I think that uh, the evolution of hotels is going to be an interesting thing to watch. Doesn't mean I don't think that companies like Marriott are, are in dire trouble, 
but I do think they need to, to get more creative with what they're charging people for and what people are getting in return for the money they're paying to be in a hotel. You know, I just want to pick up on your point about the importance of culture, because I've been struck by that uh, a great deal. And there's this, uh, it's almost become trite now, but, you know, going around the business world, this uh, saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I have to say that I've experienced a little bit of this in my own career. Of course, I, I come out of a politics context, but I've been part of managing two different congressional offices that obviously had a DC office, but had five separate, this is in two, for two different members of Congress, five separate district offices. So what are you talking about? A highly distributed work culture where people are not seeing each other. They're not interacting. It's not the, you know, fabled water cooler interaction. And I can tell you, it is a struggle because you're maintaining, you're trying to maintain a cohesive culture that is supposed to eat your strategy for breakfast. Have you observed as, as this line of thought has kind of risen about the importance of culture, have you observed business leaders or, or particular companies that have started to to figure it out, that have started to come up with answers for how to do that, how to maintain culture in an increasingly distributed workplace environment? And do you think that seeing that, that kind of forward-looking vision uh, that, that prioritizes culture, do you think that that's something that analysts like you will start to bet on in the market? So I think it's an evolving story. I don't know that any large company has figured it out. And if they have, they're keeping it to, them, to themselves at the moment. Um, I think that it is absolutely something for investors to watch because I, it's, let me put it this way. It's not going to surprise me if, let's say, somewhere between the second half of 2021 and the first half of 2022, someone writes a long article for a business magazine or for the Wall Street Journal about how a well-known company, and I don't have a particular company in mind, this is just a, a, an idea that I've been kicking around, but it's not gonna surprise me if someone writes an article about a well-known company that is suffering from a brain drain and is having trouble hiring because they have made a big bet on one extreme version of the office scenario. Either it's, nope, we're all in, you have to be, in the office, or it's no, we are fully remote and we will continue to be fully remote. I think that the flexibility point is, is really important for companies. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that doesn't show up on a company's balance sheet, uh, but it absolutely is something that gets talked about anytime a company is either being very competitive in their hiring or having trouble hiring. So as we look to wrap up the year, we're also looking to wrap up the show. I'm going to turn it over to you for a lightning round question. You can riff on this in any direction that you want. Um, what are, in the final analysis, your big takeaways from 2020, your, your big lessons? Um, you know, what is, what is sort of the period on the end of the 2020 sentence that you would like to put Chris Hill um, from a business, economics, money, and investing standpoint? 2020 was a year that rewarded patient investors. It was a year that saw innovation happening, particularly among software and traditional tech companies at an accelerated pace far beyond what we have seen at any point previously. And it was a year in which, as we talked about earlier, we saw 
leadership tested in ways that had never been tested before. Um, we certainly saw the financial sector tested in a very big way in 2008, 2009. This was a pandemic that affected every business and some leaders passed with flying colors and some leaders uh, were put in a position where they had to essentially shut down the company that they were running. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because in the midst of this year that is going to finish up 14, 15%, we had a massive drop of 34% over a one month period. Um, that's something that's going to be easy for future investors to lose sight of. Uh, but those of us who lived through it will remember it forever. Well, Chris Hill, uh, host of uh, uh, Motley Fool Money, with a uh, Willis Reed-like performance here, um, rising from the injured reserve uh, to come bring us these end-of-year insights. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to doing more of this in the new year. When we come back uh, and talk next time, we'll, we'll start to look ahead uh, to 2021, which we hope will be a better year. Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, number one stock investing show in America. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Matt. Here's to better days. 